Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher, and with me is Morgana. Tonight, we're welcoming Zelia Edgar back. Um, we're very happy to have her back, and we're talking with her about her new book, Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents, which just came out, what, a month ago, month and a half, two months? Something yeah, like, like early January. Okay. All right. See, time has no meaning anymore. Uh, With this pandemic, I just live in this timeless realm where all time is now. So I had no idea. I just knew I just read it and it was good. So it was excellent. Yes. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And thank you so much for having me back on the show. I'm really excited to be here. We are thrilled to have you. We are we are and and we both had so much fun reading this. I think we have three copies between us because I got a physical copy from Morgana. I have a physical copy and I have a a, a Kindle copy. You also got me a Kindle copy. Oh, well then four. For, to That's have four. until the physical one got shipped. So we That's have right. four. Okay, we <laughs> oh have my four goodness. copies. Well, maybe maybe one of us will will give away a, a physical copy. To, oh, I'll to definitely pass pass mine on pass to, it to my Chris. best friend or Chris. Yes, yeah. I was going to pass it to Brittany, but Chris works too. Oh, Brittany would like it too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could pass her my copy, which has notes in it. She she might be entertained by That's that. That's true. Um, I okay. First off. I, I want to say one thing. You should have named it, or I would have named it, the High Strangeness's Greatest Hits, or the Greatest Hits of High Strangeness, because that's what it is. It is all the great cases, all the big cases. And what's really interesting to me is many of them I've read before, because I'm old and I've read all this stuff for a very long time. But you still got one or two in there that I didn't know. And the way that you wrote the descriptions of them and the way that you presented the cases was very clear and very concise. And yet you did not leave out details. I appreciated that so much. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I'm seriously beaming here. That is high praise, especially to hear that I managed to find and uncover two new cases for you. You know, that is just, I've heard that from a few people. And I have to admit that makes my day just because I totally love, you know, when I find a case that I haven't heard of before, it it's thrilling, you know, because it's true. I've been in this for a long time. I've seen a lot of, you know, it's true, the greatest hits. So when I can find something really obscure, I'm like, hey, this is something new. So seriously, thank you so much. You're welcome. You are very welcome. I also loved that you did all of that and you made this entertaining and gripping. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Like, this is just really fun to read. Like, some bless all paranormal writers and theorists and thinkers, but some books are stodgier than others, and this one is a treat. Yes. Jeez, thank you so much. Like, seriously, guys, I'll probably say this a million times, but just thank you. Um, Because, you know, I take this material very seriously, is the truth of it. But on the flip side, I don't take myself too seriously. So, you know, I kind of try and come at the source material with kind of a blend of, yeah, respect, but also carrying with me a sense of humor, just because I feel like it's really easy to kind of get lost, you know, in honestly kind of like the darker side of paranormal research if you don't sort of throw back that trickster-esque aspect. So yeah. that's really glad to hear that it turned out that way. So thank you. 
it, yeah, absolutely. it comes across as, as joyous. And it, I think it, we're all fans of John Keel, but when you read a lot of John Keel in a row, you start getting really paranoid. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and like, you there. don't want to look out the window at night. <laughs> like, John Keel anon- anonymous group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you start being really nervous when your phone rings and like this while being super informative and in-depth and has some really excellent theorization at the end, you know, does manage to keep from instilling an element of fear in the reader, which I think is awesome. I'm also sure some people are going to be like, well, it's not spooky enough. But like, this isn't (laughs) necessarily about being spooky. This is about, you know, this is what happened. What can we learn? Uh, that seriously just makes my day because, you know, bringing up Keel is a great point. You know, he is like, I love him. He's fantastic. I will admit, after reading The Eighth Tower, I i mean, I was in my like mid to late teens. I had to take a break. I was mm-hmm. like, this is just, this is too much. I'm not going to think about this for a couple weeks. Got to be done for now. Um, and so I, I do totally understand what you're saying about that feeling of paranoia that you know comes across because it's true you know he handled so many cases that he got so in depth and involved with um and you can really see how there was kind of that pull from the phenomenon in his life and it's easy just even with a casual interest to start worrying about that in a way and so you know i'm i seriously very glad to hear that you know my book comes across as you know not necessarily gloom and doom and like you know terrifying because you know after that little you know, kind of miniature freak out session with the eighth tower. I really did try and like, you know, come at this from, I don't want to say more balanced, but kind of, yeah, just really looking at it still as seriously, but just not holding so tight to everything. Um, And that's kind of how my work has progressed these past years. So again, just really, really glad to hear that it kind of turned out that way with this. I, uh, I also think that you caught, just a taste of John Keel's lightheartedness when he's being funny because he had a great sense of humor. Oh yes. And and so it is reminiscent of of that sense of humor. There's a little little taste of a Nick Redfern sardonicness in there, but you have a much lighter touch than either of them. Oh my um, goodness. Thank with, you. <laughs> with with humor and 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 with and, and you have your own voice. So I'm going to read this from your introduction because I loved this paragraph so much I highlighted it in hot pink. We're in the boondocks of the twilight zone, a place where half-formed concepts cavort with full-fledged nightmares. There are no clear boundaries here. Occurrences and appearances bleed through the tidy self-contained categories that convention dictates should stand. Patterns exist between all anomalies, whether they be cryptid encounters, hauntings, UFO sightings, poltergeist phenomena, religious apparitions, folkloric beliefs, or demonic manifestations. The evidence at once points two separate ways, to physical occurrences that can't solely abide by physical laws, objective events that revel in subjective appearance. Simply put, the evidence points to something paradoxical. 
So you had me at that 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 paragraph. I was like, well, if the rest of the book sucks, it's all right because that's that paragraph's <laughs> right there. <laughs> but then it, the rest of the book follows in in kind, and so I, I was really impressed with that because you basically boiled it all down to it's neither this nor that; it's both in every way you can look at it. I'm going to say it again. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm seriously like, I I almost feel like such a dork right now. I'm just like, I am beaming from ear to ear. So thank you so much. But um, yeah, that is kind of my current way of looking at all of this material is, you know, so often we're focused on, you know, is it physical or is it non-physical? I think that's one of the biggest questions in paranormal research, whether you're talking about UFOs and cryptids, especially, um, even once you get into ghosts and poltergeist manifestations, there's still that question. Um, Even Mm -hmm. though, of course, we tend to really think of ghosts as immaterial, even though they can affect material change. And we think of UFOs and cryptids as material, even though they behave in ways that cannot possibly be solely material. And Mm -hmm. so I think that 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 debate um, and it's a huge schism, too, between different researchers and different, you know, people have their own kind of tents that they pitch in different camps. Um, and I think that the trick is, is that we are looking for something that exists between those two points. Um, and that's kind of a difficult thing to accept. You know, I feel like as human beings, we really want to decide things and we really like to, you know, put them in this category and then we're just done with it. Um, you know, that's why we have such a thing with taxonomy. We want to just call something a certain thing and just, you know, it's over there now. We don't need to think about it. And so I think that that concept of, you know, existing at that kind of crossroads point, you know, it is kind of a tricky thing to conceptualize even, but it's the only thing that really, in my mind at least, makes sense when you look at the full picture. Exactly. I also like, towards the end, there is theorizing in this book. And I'm trying not to, like, spoiler everything, which is really hard. we have to talk about it a little bit. We have to talk about it a little bit. But, like, I'm just like, ah, it's such a good book. (laughs) And I very rarely get to talk to an author of a book I really enjoy because a lot of them are dead. Yeah. Hey, I yeah. It comes of being old. You know? <laughs> I have had I, dreams about John Keel and H.P. Lovecraft. I don't know right. what to do with that. I feel like we could have a séance, but even if John Keel showed up, you could you couldn't trust it to be John. Exactly. <laughs> and he'd be salty anyway. He'd be like, he would. Why are you, Why are you bothering this? me? What are you doing? How did you get my cosmic number? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bugger off. Um, yeah. yeah. But I think that you say that there's room for multiple answers to be right. And I think that's such a valuable concept <laughs> because it is so divided it's it's is it nuts and bolts is it flesh and blood is it you know energy beings is it this is it that and i tend to fall somewhere on the trans transmogrifications of energy side of things Mm. but i also am like you know there might be physical bigfoot somewhere is it all exactly all bigfoot cases no but it might explain a couple but i don't know and that I don't know, which you also talk about being 
of huge importance to researchers to just admit that like none of us know. <laughs> yeah. Is so key because I think if we all just admit we don't know, I think one will all feel better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very yeah. good point. Like, we'll be less stressed out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying to like find the answer, but also I think admitting if you don't know something, it opens up more possibilities beyond what you've been thinking of things as, which was terrible syntax, but I hope everybody understood what I meant. Oh, definitely. Well, you know, and I think that's such a key point too. Like I'm open to any answer is the truth of it. However, I am not open to quote unquote, the answer. You know, as soon as that's what's being billed, I am truthfully no longer interested um, and so that's, mm-hmm. I think that's the risk that we run too, you know, because the concept, like, I am a huge fan too of the transmogrification of energy idea and like Keel's super spectrum and all of that. Um, my concern with that is kind of double-edged. My first concern is that if this phenomenon does have a reflective capability, you know, it's just going to confirm that just as it confirmed the nuts and bolts saucer motif, just as it confirmed the airships, just as it concer- confirmed the fairies or religious apparitions or whatever. Um, and then on the flip side, too, I do think, and Keel actually nailed this down at the end of Operation Trojan Horse. He was like, you know, we don't want to lean too heavily on this concept that these things are not at all physical because, and I think he said this kind of tongue in cheek, it leaves us wide open for an actual space alien invasion. Um, but that is, you know, kind of a coy way of putting it i do think that like you were saying and like i firmly you know kind of have my foot in too i think that there's definitely more than one right answer with all of this and bigfoot is another fantastic example of that you know whether it's nostalgia bigfoot was like my first big interest in the paranormal um or what i would really love there to be physical bigfoots you know i mean i just i am very nostalgic for that concept that somewhere on north america you know, there's a population of actual undiscovered primates. And I think that there's the possibility for that. You know, I mean, there really isn't anything to discourage the idea that they could exist in small numbers. Now, do I believe that that accounts for the majority of sightings across the entire country? Not at all. Do I think it accounts for the sightings of Bigfoot with light anomalies, Bigfoot holding onto orbs, Bigfoot vanishing? Absolutely not. You know, I think that, you know, in this case, and that's a perfect perfect example of that. We're looking at two different types of phenomena, one that may actually be natural as we understand it and organic as we understand it, and then one that is whatever else this actually is. Right. Yeah. I When I read about Bigfoot being seen in a, in a London sort of industrial area yeah. near a, a railroad track. Yeah. With some shrubbery you know, some, some weedy shrubs. That was all that, w- I, the rest of it was warehouses. I was like, there is no way that, that, yeah. that there is a relict population of hominids covered in fur living in London. I'm sorry. It can't, it can't, it can't. Yes. But in the Pacific Northwest, yes, it can. I, I thoroughly believe that they can be physical in some cases and, than paraphysical in other cases because you know then you still have footprints yeah oh but they they disappear in the middle of a field of snow well how does that happen exactly (laughs) maybe he he, you know i don't know hitched a ride with a ufo (laughs) it's not like that's never been seen 
So yeah, you know what do you do with that? Those those inf- those bits of information. And as you say, humans don't like both and. We don't yeah. like this and that. We like this or that. We like yep. assurances. But you know, Wired just came out with this big article about the life and and work of Jacques Vallée and he's been in this 60 years and he still doesn't know what UFOs are and he says it right there says it openly I've been doing this for 60 years I have no idea what they are so if he's comfortable saying I have no idea what they are I don't know I'm gonna go on his side and be like none of us know what they are and whenever somebody is like i know exactly what it is i'm like "Mm, okay you you, okay belief's the enemy i'm just gonna go over here now and be quiet (laughs) and smile and nod politely and be kind because that's what i'm gonna do um but yeah you really do very well with with you have all of these these cases where there's physical evidence and then you know then that they 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 dissolve into thin air and become you know spooks or specters it's fascinating i just love it and and you have lots and lots and lots of the high strangeness for those of us who truly enjoy high strangeness how did you pick your cases Standard Boy, boilerplate, boilerplate question. Sorry. <laughs> hey, no, that's yeah, fine. but I wondered it as I was reading it. I was like, you know, there's so many that you, that you can <laughs> dig through, yes. and somehow you managed to get that 1970s compilation album of the greatest hits. So I, how did you how did you do that? I love that analogy, by the way. So thank you, because <laughs> as maybe you know obvious from my work i love that era in particular of like you know the late 60s early 70s i love that in general but especially when it comes to high strangeness it's just like it really is the golden age in my opinion oh yeah um so how do i pick my cases that is a great question because i kind of just i read a lot of this stuff just constantly so i've got a lot of information coming in and pretty much it's just i feel kind of almost like a crow when it sees a shiny thing There'll just be a case that just stands out. And I'm like, that seems weird. And the weirder it is, the weirder it seems right off the bat, the more likely I am to pick it up and try and find everything I possibly can on it. Um, So really, it comes right down to the fact I am a huge fan of high strangeness, of course. So I really love cases that have, for one thing, like high contact or, you know, a pretty lengthy period of time where the witnesses are engaging with the phenomenon. Um, it's one of the first things I look out for because that usually yields more high strangeness and more weird oh, stuff. Yeah. So, you know, once I've kind of picked up on a case that I think is really intriguing, um, like a great example of this is actually the Marlington encounter. I first came across that in Keel's The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings. Um, and he just had a short snippet on this Sasquatch-like creature that shorted out a guy's car twice. And so once I kind of pick up on a case where I'm like, okay, this one ticks all the boxes. I want to find out what I can about it. Then I go on a hunt for anything I can possibly find. So like, you know, articles, um, any mentions in other books, um, if there's even websites that have the story, if they have different sources. Um, Marlinton is a perfect example, too, of how I found a ton of old newspaper articles about it, which when I can find newspaper articles from the you know date this occurred, I'm just thrilled about that. You know, because for one thing, 
you're close to the actual events time, which is always mm -hmm. important because, you know, it's a really close, you know, not necessarily firsthand, but as close as you can firsthand account. And then two, I just love these retro newspapers. And Marlington is such a great example of this because they just, honestly, they are so interesting. And the vernacular that they use to discuss these monsters is just fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. Marlington's encounter, the Marlington encounter occurred you know, at this time where there was kind of this mild monster panic going on in the area. And so the newspapers were running articles on this Sasquatch-like creature that people were seeing. However, they were correlating it to the Braxton County monster, which had occurred almost a decade earlier. So seeing mm -hmm. that tie in the newspapers, they actually even in one said, perhaps the Braxton monster is back, but it seems to have changed its face. You know, just hearing the way that they talk mm -hmm. about and discuss these cases is so much fun. Um, so anyway, I'm like way off the beaten path here. So I go around, I try and find absolutely every source I can on these cases. And then once I have my collection of information, you know, I really try and like filter down and see what the actual narrative is. Because a lot of the times when you're dealing with these old cases, they've been reprinted many times. And sometimes mm -hmm. there'll be, you know, artifacts added in. Sometimes, you know, certain accounts will leave something out. So really trying to figure out, okay, what actually did happen? Um, and setting down that narrative is my first concern. And so then once I have the strong, you know, facts of the case, that's when I kind of get to do my absolute favorite thing in the world. And that is just absolutely pick it apart and dissect it and look for different patterns and, you know, parallels with other cases and speculate on it. So that's kind of my process for choosing cases and then how I deal with them. So when you dissect, dissect a case, what, what do you, I feel... You, I, I'm seeing you dressed up as Scully in the morgue with the the <laughs> pretty. You know. yeah. I do have a lab coat and some gloves. No, I'm joking. Yeah, <laughs> I'm rewatching the X Files with my younger child, so I, I Scully and Mulder are very close in my in my head now. Um, oh my But gosh. you know what? I, what you, I know it's my, so fun to watch it with somebody oh, who's yeah. never seen it. One of my favorite shows of all time. I'm sure that's probably pretty obvious <laughs> yeah yeah it is, it is. Um, i have no shame <laughs> and uh so what do you do you know do you do you do like a folklorist does and pull out uh story motifs essentially where you know okay this was a saucer shaped object that's one motif it's silver it's another motif uh there was uh, spontaneous psychokinesis afterwards. That's another one. Is that part of how you do it? Or how do you go about that? That is actually really close to what I do. And the funny thing is, um, you know, writing this book was such like, it was a journey, but it was also kind of a trip, if that makes sense. Because I got to revisit a lot of cases that I did, you know, years ago for my channel. Um, and it was interesting, because I can see just in that fairly short span of time, um, how my thought process and all of these has kind of evolved. And not only that, but my information base has also evolved. And so it was super fun to be able to go back and look at some of those cases that I did years ago and realize I didn't pick out everything I possibly could have. Um, so yeah, I do. I just kind of look for yeah certain motifs that stick out or symbols, um, especially to certain aspects of the story that you'll see time and time again. You know, of course, there are a few that I'm really interested in, such as like light anomalies, um, strange noises, things like that. And those are some that, you know, it's amazing, but it's like when I go back again to those earlier cases that I reviewed for my videos, you know, I didn't see that pattern at that point in time. And so it was so much fun to then kind of like look at those cases over again. 
um, and tie them into this larger, you know, again, kind of like database of cases and high strangeness. So yeah, it's just, it's pulling out aspects and, you know, especially patterns that I've seen before. So many of these cases share patterns between each other. Um, and that is just every time I can find something that correlates to another case, especially if it's like a cross-boundary case, you know, if I'm dealing with one UFO case and there's another Bigfoot case and they share a similar motif, um, that is just so exciting to me. So yeah. yeah, that's exactly what I do. Pull out all of the different things that remind me of other things and then just kind of delineate them from there. That sounds awesome. Um, I, I had a weird brain segue. Sorry, everybody. Um, one thing I noticed that's sort of a pattern, it's not in every case, but it is, it's in just under half of them. And I loved this. And I loved that you noted this. People, when the strange experience starts happening, they do not initially go, oh, it's obviously a strange thing. They go, oh, it's a raccoon. Yes. Or some normal thing. Mm -hmm. And that is the first mm -hmm. assumption people make is that this is a mundane thing that's happening. And then they get a yep. closer look and then they're like, okay, this is not normal. And they, they fully experience the strange that is going on. And I love that for two reasons. One, I think it sort of puts to rest this idea that floats around in skeptics corners of the world where, oh, people just jump to magical conclusions. It's like, yeah. no, people jump to mundane conclusions. <laughs> yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I also love that I, I love that you just included that because it is part of a pattern. And I have mm -hmm. not seen that pattern laid out in a book as just part of the similarities of cases ever before and you are that careful of a researcher and narrator that that little thing is there to be picked up on in your case selection well again thank you <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry probably just half a million thank yous left for this episode so anyways um <laughs> we could stop praising you but like we had you on your show to talk about your book and it's just gonna happen i think oh my goodness yeah yeah Sorry, <laughs> but that's all right. <laughs> I swear I'm blushing. Anyway, no, so, um, no, and I, I appreciate that you brought that up too, because that is, and again, it stands out to me for the first reason that you brought up as well. So often you'll hear from skeptics, oh, well, people just want to see Bigfoot. They want to see a UFO. They want to see, they want to see something insane and crazy and out there. They want to have that experience. So when they actually saw a sandhill crane, they called it Mothman. And it frustrates me to no end because, you know, like you just said, in so many of these cases, it's true. The witnesses immediately justify it as something normal going on. Mm -hmm. You know, they rationalize it as something that they've experienced before. And, you know, even it got to the point, like one of my favorite examples of this is actually the Rochdale creature, um, which, of course, was from Rochdale, Indiana. It had spectral qualities, almost like a poltergeist, even though it looked like a Bigfoot. And the family initially was insistent that it was just an escaped gorilla. You know, it had visited their house several times by this point. They're like, that is a gorilla. You know, finally, I think after it did its magical vanishing act and appeared translucent and didn't leave tracks, they started realizing yeah, this was obviously a very magical gorilla. Um, but no, people, people really, when they have these experiences, 
their knee-jerk reaction is to make it something that they understand. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I see that when I go through these cases. And I think, too, it also helps. I've seen it in the personal experiences that I've had or that family members have had. You know, when you see something insane, you're not going to immediately jump to some crazy, like, out-of-this-world explanation. You're going to try and see if it's something normal first. That and is what that, I do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, yeah, I know when my mom saw when we had this really close um, sighting of orbs, I think I may have talked about on the last episode I was on with you guys. You know, when she first saw them, she's like, wow, there's a construction site over there. That's a big crane. And then she's like, there's no crane. Those are just lights. You know, so it's like, you really, you know, you try and fit things into reality. And mm-hmm. then you come to the terrifying conclusion for many of these people that it simply doesn't fit. So, yeah, that's that is why that's such an important aspect to me, too, because, you know, so often I think that and here's the thing, true skepticism, where you really try and look at the evidence and try and understand it. I have no problem with that. Dogmatic skepticism, I have a major problem with. And my biggest problem with it, too, is that, you know, they try people who really just kind of believe in disbelief, try to appear so rational about it. And it's that rationalization. And well, this couldn't possibly have been you know, something, a UFO sighting, or it could have possibly been a Bigfoot because it was obviously just an owl, or it was obviously just, you know, reflections, or it was obviously just a star or something. You know, it sounds so practical, and it sounds so rational, and people who don't really have an interest in this sort of thing are likely going to be like, okay, yeah, look at the crazy people who said that their house was besieged by aliens. It was just, you know, what was the um, example for the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins? Oh, it was circus monkeys painted silver from one of those many crashed circus trains. That but really, all the time. And oh, I know. Monkeys silver, and they can float, and they're bulletproof. Don't forget that one. And um, they were drinking, which apparently yes. they weren't, because no, they alcohol weren't. wasn't allowed in the house. And also, so, too, I mean, a whole posse of investigators was on the scene in the middle of that night. They found no evidence of alcohol on the premises. Not to mention nope. that the entire family piled into the car, made their way to the police station, and didn't appear drunk at all they just appeared frightened um so that that's my other kind of the flip side of my issue with that concept is that the rational option the you know mundane option that is so often kind of paraded around usually doesn't fit the evidence in the slightest Mm -hmm. Um, making it then kind of oxymoronic it's completely impractical so there's my rant (laughs) yeah it was a good one it's it's an excellent one and and it's one that needs to be repeated uh, I I really, my problem with dogmatic skepticism is it's another case of belief is the enemy. Exactly. It's just kind of in the opposite way. You know, yeah. that's not scientific reasoning. Scientific mm-hmm. reasoning is looking at the evidence in an unbiased way. And you go through all of the possibilities. And, you know when you go through all of the probable possibilities and you're left with the improbable, then that's probably what it is. Yeah. You know, that that's, that's how even Sherlock Holmes knew that for goodness oh, sake. Yes. I mean, you know, you, one you, of my other yeah, idols in my childhood, mother Conan Doyle was a spiritual, was interested in spiritualism. He was clearly biased. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But still Sherlock Holmes knew that. I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and it was hardly ever anything spiritual for for good old Sherlock. That's it was true. almost always something something that those darn yeah. kids did. I was obsessed with Sherlock Holmes when I was a kid. Read through all of the so original. Was I. Yeah. Same. Oh my gosh. 
Were yeah. you also obsessed with Agatha Christie? Actually, no. Somehow okay. I missed out on that one. I, I oh, was also Agatha obsessed Christie's with Christie's great. I was also obsessed with Harry Houdini, though, which is kind of ironic, you know, given Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini. I think that's yes. a good balance. That is a Honestly, good balance. Yeah. You get both sides of good, yes, spiritualism, yeah. nay, spiritualism. I mean, I'm a Pisces. What can I say? <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. I only halfway believe in astrology. <laughs> I was about to say, I'm not super big on astrology, but I do like the symbolism of the duality. Yeah. So when you um, when you look at at your at your patterns, what do you think is the the do you have one pattern that seems to be the most important one, most prevalent one? That's that's what I mean. That there's one thing that is mostly prevalent in all of these high strangeness char- uh, characters, Blah. cases. Although um, you do have characters in this book, you've got some frogmen and some demons and horrors and monsters. I mean. You have a, a whole cast of unsavories in there, but they Frog- don't seem too terribly scary the way you write about them. So that's appreciated. Frogmen and demons and monsters. Oh my! Oh, exactly. <laughs> Maybe yeah, that should have been the title. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that for me, you know, initially as I started this book, and it's again, it's amazing to kind of see. This is a really a growing process for me as I go through my research. Um, because when I started the book, I thought that the one that I would be most really kind of trying to pin down was especially light anomalies. And I do spend a lot of time on that concept. By the time I reached the end of the book, um, I'm tending to look at that in conjunction with the concept that there appears to almost be almost like a kind of a primer in these cases. Um, that when people have these cases of high contact, it starts usually with a more vague event. And I think that that's really important um, because, you know, again, a lot of the times it's a light anomaly. There are many of these cases where a light or even um, almost a a light emission from the entity is the first thing noticed. And again, that was what was really standing out to me as I was going through this. But then there's many other cases, too, where actually there's a strange noise, you know, that is the first event. And I know Joshua Kutchin in Brimstone Deceit even talked about the concept of these bizarre smells associated with paranormal. Um, So it seems to me that's something that I'm definitely kind of on high alert for now is any sort of event that precedes what we consider the main event. Um, Because, of course, you know, when we're dealing with these cases, and again, I focus on cases of high contact. And so usually there's one really big, weird thing, whether it's an entity or a UFO event or maybe entities with a UFO event. um, And that's kind of the focus. However, you know, right before that, the smaller, more vague event, like uh, Rochdale is another great example, where, you know, there were sightings of this Bigfoot-like creature that appeared almost spectral over a couple of weeks. Um, dozens of people saw it in the town. It even was held responsible for the killing of over 100 chickens. So you have this really crazy monster event, again, high contact over a large period of time, lots of witnesses. However, the initial event was of an exploding light anomaly. Mm-hmm. And strangely enough, it was spotted by the key witness's brother. And then later that day, the key witness herself um, heard a strange noise. She and her son went outside to close the windows on the family car because it was just starting to rain. And she said that she heard a boo or oo type noise. She looked around. No one was there. She heard it again. And it was at that point that she thought that it sounded human. And she even felt kind of a breath on the back of her neck, looked behind her. No one was there. 
Um, so again, that is like kind of the small, you'd think it's almost like small potatoes, you know, oh, you heard a weird disembodied voice, there was an exploding light anomaly, let's look at the Bigfoot, you know, and the vast murder of hundreds of chickens. Let's look at how it doesn't leave footprints and how weird this is. But I think that those, you know, again, more vague, um, kind of smaller events, you know, I think that it's definitely a mistake not to think that they're important. Um, and this, of course, too, it goes back to Keel in Operation Trojan Horse, where he discussed uh, hard sightings versus softer sightings. And I mean, this was mainly with UFOs. And he said, we're so focused on the hard sightings of the craft. How big was it? What color was it? Did it have propellers? How high was it? How fast was it going? And we tend to ignore the softer sightings of simply light anomalies. And so I think that, you know, focusing on either one too much is obviously um, kind of dangerous. You're really running the risk of missing something. Um, but yeah, that's probably the biggest pattern that's emerged um, just even through the writing of this book is that a lot of these events are preceded by something which seemingly is less important and is definitely a lot more vague. Um, so that's that's something I'm keeping an eye out as I go through cases now. Yeah. You know, Keel even said in um, his newsletter that he, you know, mimeographed and sent out back in the day for investigators to ask witnesses about something. Did anything strange happen before this happened? Like a few weeks before or a few days before or a month before? Um, does anyone in your house have precognitive dreams or, you know, things like that? Did you hear something? He kind of was in there that there was, there was almost always a little thing that happens. And I, I think it's interesting because a lot of people I've been interviewing who are experiencers don't consider themselves experiencers until they start talking about all the experiences they've had. <laughs> and, you know, if you take them each one by one, they're small. Mm -hmm. But if you put if you string them together, boy, that that sounds awful experiencer to, you know, experiency to me, you know, that's yes. that's a lot of stuff. And yes, it was stretched out over a lifetime, but that's still considerable considering that people think, hey, these things are abnormal. Mm -hmm. These never that happen. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's funny how that works because, you know, and I, I think, okay, I'm, forgive me if this is a rewind, I think we may have like touched on this last time. Um, but I know I never really considered personal experiences that I've had or even that my family has had as having anything to do with my interest in this. And it wasn't until someone actually did ask me, they're like, well, you know, hey, you should write down everything that's happened to you. And I start writing it, you know, over the course of a lifetime and realizing there's a pattern I missed in my own life, you know? And so mm -hmm. that is, yeah, it's it's eye-opening. And it's intriguing because it's true. I, th I do feel like, and this is right in line with the concept that we try to rationalize stuff away. You know, I think that for the most part, when people have even a big event, you know, they're almost so lost in that and lost in, okay, this one thing happened that they forget about the dozen of other things that happened. Um, so yeah. yeah, that's, that's a fantastic point. Okay. Can I ask about a specific case? Yeah, of course. Sure. Okay. What's up with creepy clown, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew you'd hate that one. <laughs> I don't hate it. I just didn't like it. There's the, he comes from under a bridge. So we've got troll motif worked in here. There's berry picking motif in there, which yes. is like both fairies and missing 411. And yeah. Bigfoot. And Bigfoot. Yeah. And I just, 
that is like to me one of the most high strangeness high strangeness cases in this book yes that one kind of takes the cake like in my it wins opinion. yeah it <laughs> does to, win the book it does thank you and and to quote my younger sister who laughs at the clown um you know i think that there is there is something especially now where we are with pop culture where clowns they have a certain creep factor um and so this one i mean the intriguing thing to me is that the argument um, is that, you know, this thing, whatever it was, appeared as a clown to try and seem friendly. And I'm like, man, I would have been no. running so fast. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I would have there's, run. There's clown symbolism. Like, clowning is an yes. ancient tradition that is not really that cheerful. No. no. Yeah, there's right. a lot of, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of death in there. Yeah. Layers and layers kind of wrapped up in that one. And I know that one, too. The berry picking stood out to me as well. I mean, this case is just, it's very bizarre. It's also bizarre because the main witness was a seven-year-old girl and the pseudonym that the investigators chose for her was Faye Y. I know. Which I'm like, either someone mm -hmm. was having a really great pun of high strangeness or that was absolutely coincidental. Um, either way, very intriguing use of a pseudonym there. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, she and a boy about her same age heard Again, we're talking about these priming type experiences, the strange wailing noise. Wailing noises come up in tons of other encounters, yep. whether it's Bigfoot, even some UFO cases. Of course, haunted houses are pretty much synonymous with that noise. And they followed it across a meadow when it just stopped. Um, as they were crossing this little footbridge, a blue gloved hand popped out and then it was followed by this seven foot tall, for lack of a better term, kind of like clown automaton. You know, they said that it had an almost kind of jester style type outfit, which appeared all tattered. Um, it was wearing a hood, but it also had wooden antennae and a black knob and also a totally flat face that I guess did not move, even though it spoke to them. And see, yeah. now just let's pause here. Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah, there is so much just that that's straight up Doctor Who villain. That is yes, straight up really Doctor is. Who monster. Yeah, I was like, that's a good point. I swear, Russell T. Davies made that critter up. <laughs> He's one of his tulpas. He made him up, and then he was like, ah, I'm not going to use this, this script. And he threw it away, and it became this guy. I, it's creepy. Yes. <laughs> horrible. And I was seeing it as a Doctor Who episode in my head, and I was like, oh, man, no. Or <laughs> grown-up Pinocchio who never got turned into a real boy. Yeah. <laughs> 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 either one of these options is fairly horrifying <laughs> yes you may go on now but i i seriously had the doctor who vibe coming off that thing oh yeah well because you know it is it's the idea that it seemed you know you think of like okay the concept of the clown or the jester that figure is very old you know it's very it winds its way through folklore and so it's tempting to say that you have this really kind of you know older more traditional feeling entity but then the details, the flat face, the unmoving lips, the fact that it had geometric shapes um, instead of facial features, even the antennae, even though they were made out of wood, that conjures up, you know, something almost like a mockery of technology. Yeah. And so what you end up with is this weird thing that's hearkening to both, in a sense, the past with the folkloric motifs and the future with the technological motifs. And then the rest of it is just 100% weird. Um, I mean, not only did it use several different communication styles, such as at one point a microphone, um, which I know, and it's it's amazing seeing these cases too, because of course, um, in the British UFO Research um, Association journal, which this case is sourced from, um, they actually started out by saying ghost or spaceman 73, which I think is just 
a hilarious intro to this thing. Now, you only have two yeah. options, ghost or spaceman. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> um, no, but, you know, it's if you handle it in the technological sense, you see this motif of the communication device, the microphone, across mm. other UFO encounters. The interesting thing in this case, though, is that when it spoke into the microphone, the voice appeared right next to the children. Um, and then oh, later on, when they were that. just talking to it they said that its face didn't move but again the voice was right next to them um and to me that conjures up a lot of apparitional type reports where people say that they'll see a ghost and you know let's say it's the ghost of a murdered bride or something and they hear this woman's voice talking to them usually in their ear while the face Mm -hmm. is not moving um so again you have this thing which you know it's tempting to say oh well it's you know it appears to fit in with like the ufo type motif but then it pulls this very spectral means of communication. Um, in addition to those two types of communication, it also had this book that it wrote down a jumble of words and actually had the girl repeat back in a certain order to say that it was, hello, and I am Sam of all colors. I mean, this case is really probably the trippiest one in my book. And there are really some trippy cases on here. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one <laughs> of the ones I hadn't heard of. And I was like, man, it's- I'm glad I didn't hear about that when i was a kid because i i wouldn't have slept it's almost like a wooden golem like particularly with the the writing and reading of words Mm -hmm. and the face not moving that's a good point because you have to read the words in a certain order to animate and then you read them backwards to stop it yeah that's not about that it had to read the words i am sam hello yeah so oh that's a good point Yeah, this case, and then too, you know, it's just weird because it pulls at so many different directions. Um, It makes no sense. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's it's one of these cases, too, that's so close to falling into so many patterns. And then it just veers right off track. Um, You know, because even the weird thing, when it was first seen, it was holding onto a book. It dropped the book in the water. It had to go back to its metallic hut to get something to fish the book out of the water. Um, You know, again, there's a lot. I mean, even Betty and Barney Hill, the infamous book that she wanted to reclaim from her encounter, you know, that falls kind of in with some Mm -hmm. UFO reports. But then a lot of its conversation, once it took the children to its metallic hut, which is the creepiest aspect of the case for Mm me, um, simply Mm -hmm. because, and again, this case, you can look at it from so many angles. The kids went, so I'm like bouncing all over the place. When the kids were done with this encounter, they came to the decision that it was either a ghost or someone in a costume. And now when I pull the someone in a costume thing, I'm going to go right here on the record and say that is a million times scarier to me than oh, a yes. automaton or yep. ghost or yep. spaceman or whatever. Yep. yep. That's on the why I didn't side, like it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, on the flip side, though, the reason that I do tend to think that this was something truly anomalous is because the main witness's father for years had had encounters with light anomalies. And the intriguing thing is that it seemed as though they were almost building. Um, It started many years prior to her encounter with Sandown Sam, where he would see these, you know, just simply kind of balls of light. Um, They even appeared to follow him. He claimed that he was able to kind of almost have a communication with them. One of my favorite parts, he said one time he was so bored of watching them that he just went into his buddy's house. When he came out, they were still there. Um, And so over the years, he said that they kind of increased, you know, in how many times he would see them until finally he had an encounter where he saw these two large points of light out in the ocean. And he said that they looked like large eyes. Now this apparently was his last encounter before his daughter had this incredibly high contact encounter. Um, So again, 
you know, the kids said, hey, maybe it's a guy in a costume. To me, it seems to fall into line with, you know, familial type anomaly. Um, but no, once they were in this metallic hut, which to me really reminds me of a lot of cases of the fairy faith, where children especially are taken into the fairy's hall, you know, and from the outside, it appears to be very small, or maybe it's just an opening in a rock or something. And then once you're inside, it's this glorious palace. Well, Sam's palace was a little bit, you know, maybe not up to snuff. I guess it was two-story, and one of them was really metallic with kind of dials on the walls, whereas the other one was very homey with a wooden stove and furniture. Um, but once they were in this location, the conversation that he had with them, to me, harkens a lot to the fairy faith, um, especially when he was delineating how there were others like him on the mainland. Um, he said he could only gather berries at a certain time of day and that he had to clean the river water before he drank it. And again, that just that conjures up so many cases of the fairy faith, especially the berry thing, which is such a weird detail. And you're right, it comes up in Missing 401, Bigfoot Encounters. I just came across another Bigfoot Encounter from like the early 1900s where apparently this cloud and a monster came upon these people berry picking. It's, it's constant. But the intriguing thing about this in particular is that there are actual rules as to when to avoid berry patches because yes. at certain mm-hmm. times, that was when the good folk were there. And then yep. you have this bizarre clown automaton thing saying, hey, you know, from four to five, I'm at that berry patch. It's just so weird. And so, again, these patterns and these details, you know, if you're saying, okay, well, the kids just made it up for you know, God knows what reason. As to how exactly they would be able to nail down all these really fine folkloric details while also maintaining such a high degree of nonsense, that is beyond me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like a kid's story. No. it Kids would have, it would have been, he would have been more cheerful and would have played with them and yeah. sung songs. Because I've heard you know, stories that my younger cousins made up and stuff. And, you know, it always had, you know, whenever they said, oh, I saw a a little gnome and we sang songs and we gave him a cupcake and he gave us, you know, it's none of this metal hut with, with dials on the walls and a book you have to read out and, you know, knobs on, no, none of There's no strong narrative. You know, exactly. again, I feel like and kids, kids have a narrative. Yes, they're playing. they've got something. Yeah, you know, they're they have a thing that they are trying to accomplish, a story or whatever. Um, and you know, usually it's it's pretty much point A to point B. Now they might you know mix up a few details. Forgive them. I mean, they're children. But like with this, it's a very strong meandering narrative that ends up going nowhere and has a million dead ends. Um, and I think too, one of the things that really goes against the concept that it was just some fantasy is the fact that as soon as they left the thing, which this is another really weird example. Um, this is one case where the phenomenon didn't end the encounter. The kids actually said, okay, it's time for us to leave. And so they left, yeah. which I think is really amazing because so I would say most of the time, either the people, the witness decide to run away or the phenomenon is what calls it quits. You know, it just is not there anymore. And in this case, they were just, you know, Okay, we got stuff to do. And the very first thing they did was try to alert a workman to what had just happened. And he had been working nearby the entire length of the encounter and claimed that he didn't see anything. So, you know, again, that's their first kind of prerogative is, okay, we're going to tell this guy. And, you know, he didn't see anything the entire length of time that this encounter was going on. Which, I mean, that in and of itself is kind of, it points to something that he didn't notice anything weird going on. And again, that kind of, 
the concept that maybe it was some guy in a costume, he would have noticed that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, and he also, yeah. it's not like he'd noticed the kids playing by themselves either. Like, he didn't notice yeah. anything. So where I mean, did the kids go? Exactly. And this is pure speculation. But the truth of the matter is, where were they if he didn't yeah. notice anything? Um, and I think that, you know, that probably is one of the freakiest parts of this story. And the truth is, I really, you know, I've been so interested in this for so long that not much really scares me anymore with the paranormal. One thing that does is the concept of like the missing 411 disappearances. And, you know, the fact that throughout the paranormal, especially older encounters, you see that concept come up a lot. And mm -hmm. so in this case in particular, you know, I really do wonder what would have happened if they didn't, you know, at the end of their half hour say, okay, Sam, see you around. Yeah. yeah. Would yeah. they have gotten changelinged? Exactly. <laughs> like, and that poor workman might have been blamed for it. Yeah. yeah. If you think about it. Yeah, very you know. good point. Or would Sam have dropped down into sticks and moss because he was a fairy poppet that they'd animated? Yeah. For only yeah. a certain and even length of time or something even weirder. Yeah, appearing under the bridge, too. I mean, that is such a, like, talk about yeah. symbolism. You know, not yeah. only is there tons of folkloric symbolism, I know I brought up um, in the book, The Billy Goat's Gruff, where the troll is under the bridge. Um, but even the concept that, you know, fairies were heavily associated with bridges. Mm -hmm. um, pretty much throw a brick at any paranormal entity. I mean, don't do that. It'll probably get mad at you. But most of them, at some point or another, have been associated with bridges and crossing points. And yeah. so even that is just, I mean. There's a whole thing about can they cross water? No, yes. Yeah. Only if it's a bridge of a certain type. Yes. Yeah, I, there's there's all these traditions. And yeah, I was checking those off as I was reading it going, oh, no. Oh, I don't like this. No, no, no. Oh, you can only pick the, the berries at a certain time. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, okay. I mm, <laughs> did not like it. Not at one all. Of, oh, yeah. One of the few bright points in this is the fact that when they first saw him, I guess, they had zero interest in this guy. They saw this seven foot tall clown automaton come out from under the bridge and they just kept wandering around. They were like, okay, whatever. They weren't afraid of him. They weren't interested. They were just like, okay. And then it was only when the wailing noise started up and he brought out his microphone. You know, maybe they thought there was karaoke. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I, he invented I, it. I kind of like admire two kids who are just like, all right, whatever, seven foot tall thing. We're just going to do our thing over here. You know? I know. Like, I would not have been that nonplussed. I would have been like, bro, what are you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and their conversation, the funniest thing, too, is that the part of the story that sounds exactly like kids is their conversation. The first thing they ask the guy is, hey, man. Why is your clothing all torn up? What's right, up with that's that? That's such a kid thing to say. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, because yeah, they're was... still young enough to not really have great manners. Yeah, you know, exactly. Because that's the kind of thing that they would say and their mom would, you know, smack them in the back. You don't of the ask neck that. Yeah. You don't. I'm so sorry. You know, because, yeah, I remember it at six and seven, I was still apt to blurt stupid things oh, out yeah. like that. You know, and I had that, no tax at that age either. Nobody does. Nobody does. You always say what's on your mind. I barely have tact now. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's the thing. Um, 
Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. It was so true to life, though, in that sense that I, I was just like, this is so wild. It, it reminded me of one of my other favorite British uh, cases, which is the, the little gnomes in the little cars mm. and Nottinghamshire, yes. you know, driving around in the park. I love that one, except that one's much less creepy because yes. they just sort of drove around and were kind of cute. They were a little bit weird looking in the face, but they didn't like take kids into a hut and all that. <laughs> I have been circling that particular case for a long time. It's probably going to make appear an appearance on my channel in the near future because I, I know that one, too. It's like it sounds so charming in a way, you know, just imagining mm -hmm. these little things just kind of tootling around. Um yeah, definitely not as creepy as Sandown Sam. I'm pretty sure nothing's that creepy. <laughs> I, it really bugged me. Yeah. I both love that case because it is so strange. And it has all, like, we've discussed, it has all these threads. But, like, of all of the things that, of ca the cases that I read in this book, that is the one that if it happened to me, I would be the most freaked out for the rest of my life. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'd be having nightmares about him. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's true. Just imagining that flat, it's almost like, you know, if you see the illustrations in some of the old journals, it's almost like a paper plate with just like a few shapes thrown on for the face. And I'm like, yeah, mm. you really can't get a grip on that. You can't no. get a read on that thing. You know, it's just, it's kind of there and you have to figure out how you're going to deal with that. Yeah. 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 Again, oh. like I said, it's it's straight up straight up doctor who i ugh, ugh. um see now i'm all like thinking about that creepy creepy dude he was so creepy um what kind of what kind of uh things did you did you basically what are your favorite bits of high strangeness do you have like favorite oddities like motifs or threads that you you just love to see that jump out oh boy that's a difficult question um <laughs> let me think i mean light anomalies i will say a million times over i am very interested in those um and yeah. part of that is you know due to personal experiences the other part of that is just due to the fact that it seems as though they're very prevalent um and i think that you know in a way they may provide probably one of the clues as to what this is um again not really sure if we'll ever accomplish that um but i think that if we're really trying to sift through and find the truth you know the fact that light is present in so many of these cases and it takes such you know a kind of key role in many of them and in a way almost envelops a lot of these high contact cases you know that definitely is something that i really look out for but then there are like way more obscure things like honestly if there is ever mention of berries I go totally bananas. I'm like, okay, holy smokes, it's berries. This it's ties berries to the again. <laughs> I, I do the same thing. I do the same thing with berry picking and livestock deaths. Livestock deaths. Yes. I'm like, yes. <laughs> and then like I feel then, really bad because that's somebody's like animals. Yes. I I have a moment where I'm like, yay, but not, but yay. Yeah, but those poor things. Um, yeah. yeah. Also, running water is another one that I am. I'm pretty much just naming off all of the threads at this point. I just whenever I find a pattern, I'm like, I'm 
a total pattern freak. I'm like, hey, there it is. Because um, yeah, running water and especially the crossing of running water is another thing that I have a major interest in just because that's one of those rules that doesn't always apply. You know, yeah. mm -hmm. so often you'll have, you know, you'll say, okay, well, entities can't cross running water. That's a belief in a lot of different cultures about a lot of different entities. And then, you know, just as many times they can, or just as many times they're intrinsically tied to running water. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, that double-edged rule to me, um, again, I have a major interest in that. And I just, I wonder, you know, what exactly decides why in some cases you do see that the phenomena seems to cease at water, whereas other times it has no effect and other times it's exclusively tied to it. You know, that's just, it's absolutely befuddling. Um, so that's another one that I'm really intrigued by. And then, oh gosh, there was one other one where I'm like, I always keep an eye out for that. Oh, it'll come back to me in a second. <laughs> but yeah, no, light anomalies. I mean, that's, again, if I can Yeah, that's find... my big one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But there was one other, I'm going to be driving myself nuts with this. You'll remember oh. it three oh, well. in the morning. Exactly. Spontaneous <laughs> psychokinesis. That is also something that I do look out for, but that was not what it is. Oh, well, they'll come back to me. I mean, um, I think that one of the things, not necessarily high strangeness, but um, the thing that I'm really intrigued by is when you can look at like the witness response to these things. Um, you know, I mean, that, again, it's not necessarily confined to high strangeness, but just seeing how different people react uh, to something totally outlandish. You know, that's another thing that I absolutely love to see. And in some cases, it's actually really quite sad, um, such as the Cisco Grove encounter, the main witness in that actually had PTSD from his event. Um, he ended mm -hmm. up having recurring nightmares about his event. Um, whenever he heard owls, which is a really, really weird detail, um, he would panic. So, you know, in some cases, it's really tragic. In others, it's kind of just not quite so tragic, but still sad, such as the Simonton encounter, one of my all-time favorite cases, of course, better known as the alien pancakes. Right. You know, you have this man who is an upstanding member of his community. Um, he was liked by a lot of people, respected by a lot of people. And by the time the media frenzy had died down, he said that if anything else happened, he would not report it. Um, and I guess many years later, um, an investigator did go and talk to him. And all he would say is that he had had other encounters and he wasn't going to talk about it. So, you know, so we there's lost kind of the bummer. Of that. Exactly. So there's the kind of bummer response. But then you have one of my personal favorites, which is what um, WC or Doc Priestley responded to his sighting of the car frying Bigfoot. He decided not to tell his friends about it for months because he didn't want to scare them away. He wanted to go back to the area to do some deer hunting later in the season. And so he kept his encounter a secret <laughs> until deer hunting season was over. Um, so it's yep. just it's I love seeing people's responses to coming to terms with the paranormal um, and especially, yeah. Good old Doc Priestley. The poor man had his car burn out and he still was such a trooper. He's like, I'm not telling anyone. We're coming back here to do deer hunting. Gonna scare those guys away. priorities in order, man. Yeah, oh, yeah. Wanted, it was a good place for deer hunting, man. You can't miss out on that. Meanwhile, the locals are organizing posses with guns and muskets and Doc Priestley is just like, I'll tell my encounter when the time is right. <laughs> yes. I'm not, I know my friends are chicken shit. I'm not going to say <laughs> Oh, and just like that, I remember the thread. Facelessness. Oh, that oh, is another well, one of my personal yeah. pet faves. Yeah. I have no idea what reminded me of that. But anyway, yeah, faceless entities. That is another just special interest of mine. Um, just because, again, it's something you see across the board. So it'll be spectral encounters, UFO encounters, cryptids. You have these things that have either obscured faces or no faces, which is already weird enough. 
Um, but then the thing that really cemented that, my last uh, presentation at the Van Meter Visitor Festival was on the issue of UFO occupant clothing. And of course, I kind of branched out from UFO occupants and included other stuff as well. And I did a particular slide on the issue of facelessness. And I, of course, I was gathering all these illustrations. And so I was like, okay, this will be cool. I've got Momo, the Missouri monster. I've got a Banshee. I've got a classic like faceless nun. And then I've got this particular UFO occupant encounter. And so, of course, I'm putting the slides together and I go back to it like hours later. And it was one of those just weird moments where I was like, this is the same thing. Each of these is like the same exact silhouette. It's the same posturing and it's the same vibe. It's just that, you know, in this one, it was seen outside, so it's Bigfoot. In this one, it was seen in this haunted location, so it's, of course, a ghostly nun. In this one, it was seen with a UFO, so, of course, mm -hmm. it's some sort of extraterrestrial. So, yeah, facelessness is another thing that um, I always, if I can find a case that details some faceless being, that is that has made my day. Yeah. And, like, I love your your theorization around facelessness as well. Um, because, you know, I have nightmares about faceless things. Oh, same. Um, same. I think a lot think of people do. Does. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I wonder if that isn't pulled out of our heads or if you're right. And it's just faceless beings aren't done materializing yet. Or yeah. if perhaps the people who see them don't have a strong enough belief structure for the thing to reach into our heads and pull a mask out. Yeah, that's, that's something I've wondered as well. Because, you know, the weirdest thing about faceless entities is the fact that I feel like this is finally the dead giveaway that we're not looking at what we think we're looking at. Um, you know, because if you're looking at some sort of strange being, and I'm going to use just like, you know, cryptids as an example. You know, again, if you look at cryptozoology in the classical sense, it's just some undiscovered animal. It has to, in some degree, function as we would expect it to function. And I know that life can take many forms. I, you know, I think that that's a very valid point. However, when you're dealing with something which has no face and is still behaving like it does have one, um, like the specter of Winterfold, that is a great case because it's this really vague, you know, you can't even really decide exactly what it is. You know, I think that a lot, it's funny because a lot of these entities that kind of are undecided, they just get lopped in with UFO occupants. <laughs> like that was kind of a catch-all yeah. in yeah. that golden age. Even if there was no UFO nearby, it was just kind of like, okay, we'll take it. It seems alien enough. Um, and this is one of those. It was this bizarre bell-shaped object with kind of just this white space where its face would be. Um, it even had like a strange rigid white arm. And these two motorists had pulled over to wipe their um, car windows off or, you know, a motorist and his passenger. And this thing, quote unquote, looked in the windows. The only issue is it didn't have eyes. You know, and so in so many of these faceless encounters, they're still behaving like, you know, they've got like they one. Have. They're yeah. looking, they're seeing, quote unquote, but there's simply nothing there. Um, and so I think that, you know, really, that's something too, where it is, it's a dead giveaway that whatever we're looking at is not exactly, you know, physical in the sense that we understand it. Um, you know, it's not performing exactly as it should and that it is some sort of mask. Um, and the truth behind it, I mean, that's the big question. But I know I've wondered too, why does that happen sometimes? Because especially, you know, you have so many encounters with ghosts that appear faceless. And, you know, that's mm -hmm. just intriguing to me too, because, you know, you'd think that, okay, you're in this location that has, you know, a certain history. You can almost anticipate 
um, that you'll be seeing a ghost. I mean, again, not anticipate that, but if you're going to see something anomalous, you'd think that's kind of what you'd fall back on. But still, you end up having these just totally devoid, faceless beings. Also, can't in your dreams, can't you not... When you're dreaming, you have to make up faces out of bits of faces that you've actually seen, right? Yeah, it like has to be cataloged generate, somewhere. You can't just generate a brand new face. Which makes mm. me wonder about some dreams I've had. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but that may explain why you you see someone that you don't know in real life or in waking life, but in the dream you know them. It's yeah. Probably because their faces are parts of a bunch of people's faces. But could that be, could maybe they're just if there's not a belief structure mask to reach for we can't make a face out of our subconscious. Mm. Oh yeah. Could be. It just it doesn't project fa- or like even, you know, whatever catalog we have for some reason yeah, doesn't it reach just doesn't... whatever this is. <laughs> yeah. The or funny like, thing is, oh, no, go on, sorry. Okay, or like you posit, they're just not done materializing yet. Yeah, the funny thing is, that really occurred to me, actually, strangely enough, from a dream that my mom had. Um, because she she had this dream. We, Of course, at breakfast, we always, hey, what did you dream about last night? Oh, this, that, and the other. And so she had this dream that she was reading a book, and then she realized, hey, I'm dreaming. And the book went completely blank. Mm. And that was what kind of kicked off that line of reasoning for me is that, you know, if these things do rely on us somehow um, to project a certain mask or to project an image, you know, for some reason with some people, maybe like you're saying, they don't have such strong presets or maybe it does have something almost to do with like ESP ability. I don't really know. Um, that just makes the image unable to kind of load in time. And so what they're left with is something which objectively is a lot more terrifying, and that is this just faceless yeah, being. But it's just a blue screen of death. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because it's loading. <laughs> it, it's too bad they yeah. wouldn't have the little, like, loading circles, you know? Right? Then we would all feel so much better. Yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll wait. You just need to update your OS, guys. <laughs> Oh, I swear! If we start seeing, we start seeing reports like this, I blame this conversation. Yes, yes. If we start seeing the little spinny icon uh, and and blue faceless people, we'll know. I'm scared now. Um, I was just thinking that you know one of my favorite things is is the prevalence of hooded and cowled and cloaked figures. Not just mm, yeah. in ghostly sightings, but yeah. in cryptid sightings and in UFO sightings or UFO related sightings. And of course, fairy sightings, you know, that to me speaks of, you know, what is that particular archetype? Because we I've, see them here yeah. in the United States where we didn't have a whole bunch of uh, monks and nuns running about. You know, that's that was more of a Europe thing. I mean, we do have them, but not to the extent. Not to the extent, yeah. We don't have thousands that's... of years of church. No, we do not. <laughs> we have that a few has hundred. stood out to me too. <laughs> <laughs> and that is enough. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyways, um, no, that stood out to me too. And these, 
<laughs> the interesting thing, again, kind of like the faceless beings, is you just you get the same silhouette over and over and mm -hmm. over again. And the details will change, yeah, but it's that basic almost pattern that mm -hmm. remains the same. Um, again, whether we're looking at any of the big three fields. And I think the interesting thing with the hooded thing is, to me, immediately that calls to mind that which is concealed. You know, there's an element mm -hmm. of, like, you can't see the form underneath. Because, um, yeah, that one in particular stood out to me, too. And I'm one of these days, I'm finally going to pin down and compile, okay, what are, like, the big, like, main silhouettes that you're looking at here? And just toss hundreds of cases into each pile. Can That'll be a lot of work. Make but... <laughs> you remember in World War II, they made the airplane spotter cards? You should <laughs> make... <laughs> Oh, that would be beautiful. That would, that would be, be awesome. great. Oh you my god! Make the, the common silhouette spotter cards. That would be fantastic. Because I know the hooded one entities. It, the thing that got me is I was reading a Bigfoot encounter where they said that its hair was like a cloak, and I'm like, "Yes, hold up, wait a yes. second. <laughs> I was like, and then of course, whoa. There's this no. uh, banshee encounter. Of course, the banshee always appears, well, always, usually appears with a veil. But then there was this particular one where they said it looked like she was draped in a fine gauze from head to toe. You know, and it's, it just, again, you just, yeah. it starts sprawling out through all of these other encounters to the point where you're just like, okay, there's something to this. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love the, the hoods and the cloaks and, uh, you know, because in the in the uh, Hudson Valley River River Valley sightings in the the late '80s, there was a a pond, and there there were seen little little four and a half five foot tall guys in black cloaks with red eyes, yeah, but no faces. Oh, that's right. And that is right. With with you know UFOs that came in and out of the water. You know, again, there's water. Yeah, water is a big thing in the paranormal. It really is. Um, but you know, who are these little red-eyed monk guys? What's up? <laughs> What's up with that in New York? You know, <laughs> and affiliated with UFOs, <laughs> mm -hmm, right? Yeah, UFOs that come in and out of the water, and it's not a very big pond lake thing. It's it's not a large body of water either. Hollow That's it's weird. Yeah. And you've brought up another of my favorite aspects. Thank you. <laughs> is that so often? <laughs> See, I, I swear every of these aspects is my favorite. Just like, I'm always like, oh, yeah. And here's my upcoming favorite case. Just like the case before, which is also my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I, I understand this. You, I'm you like really that with are cheese. A crow. You are yeah, a crow. Yeah, all much. the shinies are my favorites because they're all shiny in a different way. Especially yeah. the one I'm looking at. Exactly. Because <laughs> right. that's the yeah. best. Yes, exactly. Yes. Until I look over there, and then that one's the best. I completely yeah. understand. I am like that. Oh with yeah, thank everything. you. I'm glad to know I'm not alone with that. No, um, mom's like that with cheese. I'm like that with books and shiny things. I have an awful lot of things. jewelry. Yes, oh, you do oh, have man. an atrocious amount of jewelry. <laughs> like we will have to compare collections <laughs> i'm guilty of that as well um but no another of my favorite aspects the it's kind of to me and i use this term in um, the winston connecticut encounter it's like the monster in the closet concept a lot of these beings um or craft you know or the beings in the craft it's like they don't fit into yes. 
where they claim to be going. Um, it's kind yes. of like when people, like you were talking about Bigfoot, you know, hiding behind one lone shrub in the middle of London. This yeah, doesn't make sense. <laughs> that you know, can't be and, where you live, sir. No. <laughs> it's not big enough for you, sir. Or the kids going, they're following this seven foot tall being into this tiny metallic hut that they had to crawl to get into. It just, you know, in so many of but these cases. But then it has two floors. Exactly. There's some sort of space distortion, kind of, honestly, kind of like the TARDIS, you know? Yeah. Um, and you see that a lot, especially, you know, bringing up the small, tiny little pond that these things were flying into. Um, I remember, I love Ivan T. Sanderson. Um, his book, Invisible Residence, I do think that... Oh, that's a great you know, one. It, yeah, it's fantastic. But he talks about, you know, and he was really at that time, I think, invested in the concept of the crypto-terrestrial idea that there may have been some sort of, you know, secret race of humanoids. Um, coexisting with us. And, you know, I remember him delineating how well the, the appearances of these huge craft going into small bodies of water, that's not actually where they live. That's just like a way station. And I'm like, how many, how many way stations and how many times is this going to happen? And how many, you know, times does it look like this thing is claiming that, yeah, no, this is where I am, you know, before mm -hmm. you realize this isn't, again, this isn't what we're really seeing. You know, this isn't mm -hmm. what we're really looking at. So, yeah, that's another of my favorite concepts. <laughs> or there's a really big hole in the bottom of that pond that goes to another universe somewhere else. That's exactly. A lot bigger. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah, we're subconscious. You know, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, kind of the rampant nonsense of all these encounters is just... That, that probably is the umbrella term for all of my favorite little threads. Just oh, rampant, yeah. rampant nonsense. It can be and there so is a lot fun. <laughs> like, especially when, like, because, you know, I will go through phases where I read a great deal about the paranormal in a row for, like, several months oh, at a yeah. time. And the high strangeness of just she with sheer nonsense within it is, like, such a nice, like, dessert sandwiched in between like really disturbing stuff yeah that like scares the bejesus out of you and then you get like super high strangeness and it's still uncanny and it's yeah. still bizarre but it's not like you know that church in the middle ages that the black dog ran in and clawed the door really badly yeah. and bolts of lightning came through the church roof and killed people. Yeah. Bungay and yeah. Blytheburg. Same yeah, thing. Yeah. 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 Or the church that a, an anchor fell down and hit the roof. And then a little dude came down a rope that the anchor was attached to and went to cut it. And then he fell down and, and drowned in the air. Yeah. What? <laughs> what is that? <coughs> I read that as a kid and I was like, the world is an amazing place. <laughs> Man, yeah. that's so cool. And then relate it to my grandfather at the at the dinner table and he just looked at me. <laughs> said, oh, oh how interesting. Great. And then he said, that's why I don't go to church. <laughs> Like that made some sense. <laughs> well, that's why I don't go to church. 
Oh, hey, it's, it's happened before. It'll happen again. You know. I mean. I mean. Yeah. I don't entirely blame anybody for that because <laughs> there's cannibalism that happens in there. Well, yeah. Yeah. If yeah. you take it literally, it. it yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Like. Oof. This is what ha- this is what studying early like medieval history does to you. <laughs> like you get you get really really touchy about the miracle of transubstantiation. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Many lifetimes ago, I was Catholic, and unfortunately, one of my greatest fears in life is cannibalism. <laughs> oh no! Oh, I've gotten dear. over both. I'm happy to announce. <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> oh jeez. Oh no. <laughs> oh. Well. Oh man. Anything else anybody wants to pop in with? You got to tell us where we can we can get your uh, book. Well, we don't need any more copies of it, but other people need <laughs> copies of it. And, and we're not uh, giving you ours. <laughs> yeah, we have we have all of our copies. And uh, where they can find you on the internets and what else you'll be doing in, in the near future. Of course. So the book, Just Another Tinfoil Hat Presents from Beyond the Fray Publishing, is my pride and joy. And it is available on Amazon.com. Um, so yeah, and then as far as if you're trying to find me, just look up Just Another Tinfoil Hat and you'll come across me eventually. My website is JustAnotherTinfoilHat.com. And then I'm also on YouTube as, surprisingly just another tinfoil hat um so yeah if you look up that handful of words you'll find me eventually um and then as far as upcoming projects i am very pleased to announce i have signed for a sequel um to my book with beyond the fray so look out for that probably later this year i imagine which i'm again super surreal very happy about excellent Um, yeah so beyond that i'll be speaking at the beast of bray road celebration um at the end of april which really excited about that because of course i mean linda godfrey is one of my idols and um seriously she absolutely changed my life when i was a kid and her work was just inspiring to me so yeah very very excited to have been invited to that so yeah and then other than that just keeping up on the channel so tons of new cases um coming up in the near future excellent well thank you again for coming to see us always love to have you for real you are always welcome in our virtual living room yes yes and if if you ever want to come back just just give us a holler well thank you guys you two are awesome it's just seriously this was such a fantastic conversation so thank you again for having me on thank you well that's all for this week's episode of the six degrees of john keel podcast If you have any questions or thoughts about the podcast or would like to come and talk about your experiences of the paranormal, you can contact us at 6djk67 at gmail.com. We promise to even answer you, and we are always happy to hear from you. Thank you.